One of the saddest things to see in life is a young man grow up into a debauched, immoral reprobate that is known for laziness, drunkenness, and a lack of self-control. Unfortunately, many of us know people like this. We know men in our extended families, perhaps, that fit this description. You know how the story goes. So-and-so is a grown man. They should be doing honest work, providing for his wife or his children. However, instead, this man is given over to vices and sin. He goes from place to place seeking shelter. He cannot keep a job. And if he does keep a job, he squanders his money on beer, drugs, or prostitutes. He's kind of like that demon that Jesus spoke of in Luke 11. He passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds the house swept and put in order. Then he goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than himself. Thus many a parent or grandparent or other relative that has agreed to take in such a reprobate son must have felt this. Things are worse now than they've ever been. Our passage today is Proverbs 28.7. And it deals with this important issue of how a son ought to conduct himself. And there is a reason for the focus on a son. God has given men to be leaders in the home, in the church, and in society. And there is nothing more antithetical to what God has designed men for and men to be than the reprobate son, as we will consider today. When men fail to lead, the family falls apart, the church becomes effeminate, and the society crumbles. So our text is Proverbs 28.7, and it says this, The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Now, it's not that women cannot likewise be given over to a life of sin, but it just looks different than men. If I were to focus on young women this morning, I might have chosen to speak about the forbidden woman of Proverbs 5, who immodestly uses her charm and beauty to seduce others, or Proverbs 21.19, which says it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. But the focus today is on sons and men. And even though that is the focus, the general principles certainly will apply to daughters as well. So in our text, Proverbs 28.7, we have Hebrew parallelism, in this case, antithetical parallelism. The first half of the verse says one thing, and the second half is contrasted with that to highlight, emphasize it. So the first half says, this is the good son, the righteous son, the one who keeps the law is a son with understanding. The antithesis of that is the companion of gluttons who shames his father. So let us briefly this morning interpret this passage and then apply it. So number one, consider where it says in this passage, the one who keeps the law. Let's consider this verse This phrase, the law. What is the law? The word in the Hebrew here is Torah. It is God's law, God's instruction, God's teaching. In a broad sense, it encompasses all of God's word. 
the commands, the promises, the curses, the warnings, the examples. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked about the great commandment in the law. And of course he says, of course he says, it is to love God with all your heart. This is the first and great commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says on all, he says on these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets. And when he says all the law and the prophets, he is referring to the entire Old Testament. And one way to use Torah is to refer to the first five books of Moses. But another way to refer to all, but another way is to use Torah to refer to all of Scripture. And after all, all of the Bible is God's law word to us. So in one sense, as Christians, all of the Bible is Torah. All of God's word is God's law to us. And there can be no doubt that this law in view in this verse is God's law. It is not man's law. Flip over briefly to Proverbs 29, just one chapter over, and I'll show you uh, clearly why this is the case. Proverbs 29, verse 18 says, this is another um, example of antithetical parallelism. It says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So where there's no prophetic vision, the parallel is keeping the law. So the prophetic vision is God's revelation. It's not uh, our own vision for the future, what will happen. It's God's revelation to mankind. When there is no revelation being given or when God's revelation is disregarded, the people cast off restraint. But when God's law is followed, people are blessed. In the book of Proverbs, when you see law, it is certainly referring to God's law. And even when you see it uh, as in Proverbs 6, where it says the law of your father or your mother, it is clearly implied that such teaching is to be from God's law. Remember Abraham in Genesis. We read in Genesis 18, For I know him, referring to Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him, that they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. So the law here in our passage is God's law word, God's standard, God's righteous rules and instruction to us. Note that it also says, the one who keeps the law. You see, the son here in this passage does not simply know the law. He does not simply hear the law, but he keeps the law. The word keep has the connotation of a guarding or of preserving. It's not enough to hear it. We must keep it. We must guard it. We must apply it in our lives. And this is not works righteousness. Many people have a confusing, are confused when they look to the Old Testament particularly and as it speaks about law and keeping the law. When it says the one who keeps the law is a son of understanding, it is not saying that this son is um, earning his way to God through works righteousness. But it's an adherence to do all that God has commanded. You see, keeping the law in biblical terms as a righteous person does not mean sinless perfection. It means faithfulness to God and his covenant. As last week we read the entire Gospel of Luke, and in the beginning of that it talks about 
uh, Zechariah and his wife and how they were righteous and blameless, walking in all the commandments of the Lord. didn't mean they never sinned. It meant that they were faithful to what God had laid out for them and the means of forgiveness. You see, the gospel itself is a command. The gospel is a gospel command. God commands all people everywhere to believe in the gospel. It's a law. You must believe in the gospel. You see, in the Old Testament, the saints would keep the law by accepting the sacrifices that God had given them as pictures of the coming Lamb of God, Christ. That was part of the law. In the New Testament, we keep the law by accepting the sacrifice that has been made by Jesus. That is part of God's law to us. So if we are to keep the law, if the Son is keeping the law, it doesn't mean he's perfect. It doesn't mean he's earning his way to heaven. It means that he is walking in God's commandments, including the commandment to repent when we do sin. Now, keeping the law in this context, this Son would include the duty he has to honor his father and mother. It would include conducting his business affairs with honesty, working hard, not stealing, controlling his passions, his appetites and desires. It would include being diligent in his work. It would include protecting the weak. It would include electing godly men in his community to enforce justice. It would include everything that we read in God's word. Everything that God requires of us is law. It is God's law to us. You see, law is not a bad word. As Christians in this generation, we've come to view law as a bad thing. Law is God's law is the instruction manual for life. It tells us how we are to live. It tells us if you do this, you will be blessed. If you do this, you will be cursed. You see, no one looks at an instruction manual for their car or their computer or their phone and says, oh, this is a burden. This is a curse that I have this manual here to tell me how to operate my vehicle. And yet for some reason, um, professing Christians have bought into the lie that God's law is a curse. It is a blessing to us if understood properly. As Paul said, the law is good if it is used lawfully. The understanding son gets that. He can discern that God's law is not a burden. He understands that it teaches him how he ought to live his life. That takes us to our next phrase here. It says that he is a son with understanding. Look at that word understanding. That word is often paired with the word wisdom. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read that when the surrounding nations would hear of the good and just laws of God, they would say this, Surely this great nation is a wise and what? Understanding people. A wise and understanding people. If wisdom is to walk or live aright in the world, perhaps we could say understanding is to think and discern aright in the world. They are very much related words. But this verse uh, can be translated as the discerning son keeps the law. So to be able to understand the world, to discern between good and evil. To have understanding then is to be able to discern the world around you, to properly distinguish things, to properly judge people and their actions with right judgment, allowing you to make wise choices. And this should be the goal for our children. We should want them to have understanding, biblical understanding about the Bible and the world in which they live. And then the wisdom to apply that understanding to their lives. 
So that which makes this young man a man of understanding is not that he accepts everything and everyone without question. Rather, it's that he knows and keeps God's law. He's able to use God's law as that which will help him discern and distinguish between things in the world. And as we'll see now, it will help him discern and distinguish between those whom he should have as his companions. Look at where it says, but a companion of gluttons. You see, the antithesis of the understanding and discerning son is the son who cannot discern, cannot distinguish, and makes himself a companion of men who are unrestrained in their passions. One of the greatest attractions to young people, to young people who are not walking in God's ways, is to be among those who are unrestrained, who rebel against authority. You hear, of course, many children, especially in the world, going through these phases where they want to be among those who are in rebellion and question authority. You read of this in uh, Proverbs. We just read in Proverbs 29:18 how when there's no prophetic vision, the people do what? They cast off restraint. They want to be free from any sort of authority from God, any sort of rule that will dictate how they are to live their lives. And of course, in Psalm 2, the people, they want to break their bonds apart. They want to be free from God's law. They see it as bondage and fetters, even though we know it is a blessing. So the, the foolish son, the, the son that does not have understanding, makes himself a companion of gluttons. And we should be able, we should be willing to reach out to sinners, yes, but we are not to be the companion of gluttons or drunkards or fools. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. We are not to be a companion of fools. And I can guarantee you this, that the company of these men who are reprobates, who are no longer living according to, uh, who are not living according to God's word, who are given over to lack of self-control and drunkenness and drugs and immorality, I can guarantee you that those men are not keeping company with wise men. They're keeping company with men like themselves. Turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21. This is what we read this morning, and I want to briefly make a couple comments about this passage. I won't be able to um, spend a lot of time in it, but in Deuteronomy 21, we read about the rebellious son. And we read that um, the son, he's stubborn and rebellious, and he won't obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother. And look down at verse 20, where they say, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. So there's that word glutton. In Hebrew, the word is zalal. It's the same word as in our passage, Proverbs 28, verse 7. It is also translated vile. In Jeremiah 15, it describes a man who is worthless, abhorrent, lacking in all modesty, lacking in all modesty and morality. So this this glutton is someone who has no modesty, no morality. And likewise, when we look at the word drunkard, the drunkard is someone who lacks decency and the ability to control his passions. He's a slave to alcohol and destructive to the family and society. So this man in Proverbs 20, uh, excuse me, in Deuteronomy 21 is a rioting drunkard who will not heed his parents' godly admonition. 
He's a rioting drunkard and glutton who will not heed his parents' godly admonition. Now, the weight, the weight of these sins, disobedience, stubbornness, riotousness, and drunkenness is enough for God to command the society to execute such a destructive son. But the point here in our passage is that the son that lacks understanding makes himself a companion of men who are vile, who lack decency, who lack the ability to control their passions. It is a very, very destructive thing to become a glutton, a drunkard, someone who cannot control himself. Last thing we see in just interpreting this verse is that the son who makes himself a companion of glutton glutton says that he shames his father. A son who disregards the law and puts himself in the company of the profligate, excuse me, in the company of the profligate, brings shame to his father because he is doing what ought not to be done. So he said, it says here that he shames his father. Now we need to talk about shame for a moment. Shame is a lost virtue in our culture. Noah Webster defines shame as a painful sensation excited by a consciousness of guilt of having done something which injures reputation or by of that which nature or modesty prompts us to conceal. So shame is something we feel bad because we've done something wrong. We've done something that we shouldn't do. We've done something that shouldn't be done and it certainly shouldn't be done and flaunted in the open. The Apostle Paul speaks of us that we should be of uh, the things that, that is shameful even to speak of the things that they do, the wicked do in secret. So Paul said it's shameful even to speak of the things that the wicked do in secret. There is a sense in which shame is virtuous in that it maintains or affirms that an evil has been done. In a godly society, shame serves this beneficial purpose. In a well-ordered society, those social values that are expected of people will be righteous values and they'll act to suppress the open act of evil and sin. You see, it is proper to feel shame when we sin. If we have no shame when we commit sin, we're adding more sin to our first sin. We're being stubborn and obstinate. Jeremiah preached to the people of Jerusalem. He said this, Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Jeremiah 3.3 You refuse to be ashamed. The Genevan reformers noted on that passage, quote, You would never be ashamed of your acts and repent. And this impudency is common to idolaters will not cease, though they are openly convicted. It's one thing, and it's bad enough to sin, but to be openly convicted and to have that sin exposed and to feel no shame about it is to add more sin to your ledger. Again, Paul said, speaking to believers, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Shame is a proper response to sin. You know the saying, have you no shame? Have you no shame, young man? The Free Dictionary defines that saying as follows. To have no respect or consideration for the standards of morality, 
propriety or human decency expected of someone. It's what is expected of you. And in a a well-ordered society, what is expected of you will be adherence to God's word. Not too long ago in our culture, for example, homosexuality was viewed as wrong. It was viewed as a sin against nature, and thus it was viewed as something shameful. Shame was and is the proper response to such acts. And because it was viewed that way, people were more likely to keep their sin out of the public view. And that's a good thing. We don't want people going out and celebrating their sin. As Webster said, nature and modesty prompt us to conceal those things which we ought not to do. When a society celebrates sin and says you should have no shame, then people start exposing their sin to the world. And there's a movement in evangelicalism, unfortunately, even among those who will maintain that they believe in traditional marriage, that that says that we should be sorry for shaming sinful lifestyles, that we should be sorry for how we have um, viewed homosexuality as, as a shameful sin. One columnist who endorses the sin wrote this. She said, The experts on homosexuality with whom I consult tell me that while the chances for a complete cure are extremely slim, the tortured homosexual, homosexuals who hate themselves often profit from therapy. While it does not convert them, she says, into normal males, it does help them to accept themselves without guilt and shame and all self-destructive emotions that accompany these twin horrors. The goal of this psychotherapy, this unbiblical counsel, is that people will be able to defy God's law without feeling shame or guilt the two twin horrors that she calls them. And that's how our society views shame and guilt, something you should never feel. You should never be ashamed. You should never have guilt. We need to understand this as the church. There is a place for shame and guilt. It's not loving to tell people they shouldn't be ashamed of sin. People should be ashamed of their sin, whether it's homosexual sin, heterosexual sin, whether it's pride, idolatry, hatred, immorality, immodesty, theft, murder, greed, whatever it is, we should all be ashamed of our sin. Even believers, when we sin, we should be ashamed that we have sinned against God. The good news is not that we shouldn't be ashamed of our sin, but that we can go to Jesus in repentance for our sin and he can cleanse us. Our hope is not psychotherapy that will remove our feeling of shame. Our hope is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Shame, there's a proper place for shame in our lives. Now we have considered the doctrine of this verse. Let's now make application from these truths. First point of application. The law is to be our standard of parenting. Note that this verse does not say that the one who is successful in school or successful in sports or successful in business Not that any of those things are wrong or even that the one who walks in God's ways won't generally be blessed in his efforts. But it does not say that that's the son with understanding who is successful in these areas. It says rather the one who keeps the law, the one who keeps the law. The professing church in our day has failed to look to the greatest parenting book there is, the Bible, the law word of God. And let me just touch on this point again. 
in the gospel age, in the in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the law of God still applies. In fact, Rushduni said this, if there is no law, then there is no gospel. Because in Scripture, the two are inseparable. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Then he lists several sins which mirror the Ten Commandments. And then he says this, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. You see, law and gospel are in accordance with one another. They are not at variance with one another. I like how the New Hampshire Confession of Faith on the harmony of the law and gospel, it says we believe that the law of God is the eternal and unchangeable rule of his moral government. It's holy, just, and good. And it goes on and says that to deliver us from our sin and to restore us through a mediator to unfeigned or sincere obedience to the holy law is one great end of the gospel. So one of the ends of the gospel, one of the purposes of the gospel is to restore to us obedience to the law. The law then is to be our standard for living. It's to be our standard for parenting. Are you as a parent teaching your children the law of God? If we say, well, we're all about grace and we don't teach the law of God, then we are lying. We're lying about the grace of God because the grace of God, Paul says, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God trains us to live upright and godly lives. The law is our standard for these things. The law is our standard for these things. The law says, do this and do not do this. The law still applies in full force. If we do not teach our children the law, we are not teaching them the gospel. If there is no law, there is no gospel. So the law of God, the word of God, must be our standard for parenting. And again, all of God's word is his law to us. Everything he says from beginning to end is God's law word to us. So the law of God must be our standard in parenting. How are we to conduct ourselves as parents? What are we to teach our children? How are we to discipline our children? We must go to the word for these answers, not modern therapy. The second point of application, final point of application is this. We should expect certain behavior from sons and from fathers. We we are to expect a certain type of behavior from our children, and we should expect a certain type of behavior from parents, especially fathers. I think there are two sides of this when when we talk about the shame, shaming his father, the son and the father. The son should feel shame for what he has done, and the father, especially if he has not done his duty, If he has not done his duty as a father, should feel shame because he is in sin if he has not correctly and uh, taught his son and diligently instructed his son. The father is in sin and he should feel shame. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So there's an expectation that fathers and mothers are applying the rod and reproof. Remember Deuteronomy 21, where it says the parents had 
chastened their son. They disciplined him consistently. Unlike many parents today who hate their children and spare the rod, those parents in Deuteronomy actually loved their son and were disciplining and chastening him for years. You see in that passage, again, I can't get into it, that Deuteronomy 21 passage is not of a toddler or a young teenager who won't take out the trash. It's someone who has consistently, year after year after year, this is a grown man who's a companion of rioters, drunkards, gluttons. Most parents consistently disciplined him. And despite loving discipline, there are rare occasions when a son will rebel. Not only against his parents, but more importantly, against God. Far more often, however, when I hear these stories in, in real life of this son that is a reprobate, that won't work, the parents, and especially the father, have not applied the Bible in their lives, in the lives, in the life of their family. They have not conducted family worship. They have not disciplined their sons. They have not took, taken seriously what God demands of them as a husband and as a father. And then when, and then they're flummoxed when their son ends up being a loser who sleeps all day, smells like pee, and has to leech off of other people's money. They should not be surprised. This is the fruit of your labor. It is right for a father to feel shame for having failed to train up his son in the way he should go. And I fear the vast majority of cases today, even among those who profess to be Christians, where there is a son who has abandoned all modesty and decorum, who's given himself to to drugs and, and strong drink and loose living, the responsibility comes back to the father. For his failure to follow God's law. Now again, I acknowledge there can be faithful parents who follow God's word and a child rebels. But the vast majority of those cases, especially that I have encountered, the parents have failed to live out their Christian life. You see, our culture is very confused about children. On the one hand, a bunch of people don't even want children, so they murder them via abortion. About 20% of pregnancies will end in murder. And then when children do come, some people think that allowing a child to express himself or herself in whatever way feels natural is the job of the parent. And even in the church, parents are at a loss for how to parent their children. We must return to God's word, what God says about what a son should be like, what a daughter should be like, and we must use that as our standard. You see, the son of understanding who keeps the law is a blessing to his family, to society, to the world. And there has been one son who perfectly kept the law. And of course, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the ultimate son with understanding who kept the law of his father perfectly and laid down his life for sinners like you and me, who even in our best, have failed to follow God's word. Now, we are not going to be perfect parents or sons, perfect parents or children, perfect mothers or daughters, but God still requires our obedience. And thankfully, part of that law to us is that we would repent and confess our sin and look to Christ for strength to move forward and apply his word 
to our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. We pray that you would move in the hearts of fathers in this nation and throughout the world to train up their sons according to your law. We would have godly young men being brought up to be sent out to lead families and churches and civil governments according to your word. We pray that we would be bold, we would be consistent, we would be faithful in applying your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.